This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. Autumn is nearly upon us. The forecasters promise a 20-degree drop in daytime highs this week. My boots and barber jacket are at the ready, although both likely will need to wait a little while longer in the closet. So far, I've put off ordering bulbs for fall planting, but I need to get on that. I've done a fair amount of window shopping, so I have a bit of a game plan. It's time to execute. Of course, I've been somewhat distracted with preparations for the first-ever cultural debris excursion, which is coming up in late October. My travel partner Tom Ruby and I are off to Genoa, Italy to embed ourselves into the local culture as much as possible with some guests who have chosen to go with us. Plans are afoot for more excursions in 2023, so be thinking about it. And a reminder that Kirk Month is coming up in October and Kirk Night on October 19th. Make your plans now. Pick up a Russell Kirk book to read and prepare a short story for Kirk Night along with a favorite libation. If all goes as planned, there will be some Kirk-related content on the podcast in October. Some friends are starting a new print journal called Moonshine and Magnolias, a journal for Southern regional consciousness. Your humble servant may also have some things to contribute to the enterprise. I think it should be an exciting project. Check them out and subscribe at moonshinemagnolias.com. A link is in show notes. Please do consider supporting the Cultural Debris Patreon if you enjoy the podcast. Any amount helps. There's a link in show notes. If you could leave a five-star rating and review, it would also be most appreciated. That's entirely free. It would only take you a moment. My friend Jane Greer has just released a new collection of poetry from Lamming Press with the upbeat title, The World as We Know It is Falling Away. You should buy a copy, and I've placed a link in show notes to help facilitate that. Our poem is from Jane's collection and is called Robin. He grimaces and snaps his half-inch beak at all the swooping interlopers. We, from forty feet away, pause at the sound, startling in its incongruity. It works, though. The yard empties, and this wet three ounces of despotic clacking fluff enjoys at ease his solitary bath, thinking your God is sometimes threat enough. My guest is Notre Dame professor Jason M. Baxter, who has a new book from InterVarsity Press called The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. Dr. Baxter and I discuss the C.S. Lewis few ever talk about, the dangers of presentism, and how the medievals aren't at all like the common stereotypes. Plus, for the second podcast in a row, football comes up. It's that time of year. Please join me as I talk with Professor Jason M. Baxter.
Jason Baxter, welcome to Cultural Debris. Thank you. So you are coming from, uh, I understand, the the land of golden helmets now. I am, yes. I was in the land of uh, treeless and beautiful mountains of Wyoming. Um, but we have, yes, come back to, to Notre Dame. Um, everyone asks me, why on earth did you do the exact opposite of what everyone else is doing in the world? You know, <laughs> uh, move from a place like Wyoming to the Midwest. And I said, it's because we heard the mountains were more beautiful in Indiana. <laughs> well... Yeah, you might have mis- been misled about that. Well, we're still but, looking. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, as, a, as um, a Kentuckian, you know, we have our own feelings about Indiana. So I'll not share those necessarily now, but uh, but uh, congratulations on the move. Thank and you. I will say that, uh, that my visit to, uh, to the campus of uh, Notre Dame last fall was a very pleasant one. And uh enjoyed it very much. It makes, so, uh, it makes great first impressions. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you going to be, uh, what are you going to be teaching there? Um, I will be teaching um, in the PLS program, which is the program for liberal studies, the kind of great books uh, program at Notre Dame. Um, and I will also be helping a friend in a new educational initiative called the St. Thomas More Academy. And I will be teaching in this uh, this program, I'll be teaching Latin and Greek to high school kids, including some of my own kids, and I'll be teaching ancient and medieval literature. And yeah, so I'm, I'm excited about uh, getting back to the sort of nuts and bolts and mechanics of uh, of teaching, subjunctives and and forms and <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah, so it's uh, like the old uh, the old um, Monty Python skit from uh, the Life of Brian, right? The <laughs> The, uh, the centurion John Cleese leading yes. them on their 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 proper uh, proper breakdowns of their verbs there. So that's right. That's right. Uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I had a I had an old college professor who once said that Latin grammar is the poor man's metaphysics. Poor man's <laughs> metaphysics. And it took me a while to figure out what he meant, but I think I understand now that the sort of the way of thinking about language also helps us think about the the categories of things in the world. So I'm looking forward to to doing that for some of my students in the fall. Well, that's actually a very good segue into uh, your most recent book, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, that we're going to talk about some because you're one of the things that that kind of jumped out at me uh, in in that book uh, was Lewis's understanding of the medieval world versus sort of the the common stereotypical understanding, and that was that it was it was built around think understanding things as systems. So grammar kind of fits fits into that, right? Sort yes. of uh, breaking breaking things down into categories and systems, and that that's Lewis saw that as the sort of the medieval genius, I guess. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I I think yeah, I think I love those lines in Lewis. Where he says, um, some of your listeners will, I, I suppose, unfortunately, have seen Pulp Fiction, right? There's a famous line in there about how we feel about the medieval, right? For medieval is superstition and torture and I don't know why, but uh, black leather and peasants and yeah, Monty Python and mm-hmm. arguments in the dirt and all this kind of stuff. Whereas reality, they're really sophisticated, really bookish and they have this kind of cultural task, which actually might be really similar to our cultural task right now, of trying to digest all these different respectable authorities from all these different ages. And 
and find a synthesis for that. So I guess I guess what I like about it is that analogously to us, in which there's been this incredible kind of information explosion, right? But it's not entirely obvious that the internet has been a, a good thing for us, you know, completely simply. I mean, it's it's given us access to all kinds of information, but in some sense it's culturally robbed us of knowledge and wisdom. So, I mean, our cultural task is to digest, to process, to bring this sort of thing into a picture, a, a hierarchy, a, and a meaningfully lived experience. Analogously, the Middle Ages has access to new text. They have these translations coming in from the Greeks. They have these commentaries coming in from, from Arabic. They've rediscovered uh, Eastern Christendom to a certain extent by means of these uh, Syriac and Arabic uh, you know, translations. So this incredible time of, like us, information overload, explosion of new knowledge, and so system building, right? Or trying to create a meaningful hierarchy in which I don't just have a brain full of bits and pieces of, of various observations and facts, but it makes sense somehow, both in terms of the intellectual structure, but also in terms of my own, how I build my own life, my own moral response to these things. And so I think I think that's a really neat uh, uh, moment of rapprochement between the medieval and the modern eras of I guess what we could call data information overload, the risk of losing moral knowledge and wisdom. Yeah, that's an interesting parallel. I mean, I I think of course we wouldn't be able to to do the interview that we're doing right now the way we're doing it without the internet and true uh, you know uh, people would be deprived of my uh, observations and witticisms on twitter and, and things like that yeah that'd be a tragedy uh, right yeah. exactly <laughs> <laughs> uh but i think um you know having having had the uh the ability to live a, a good part of my life prior to the internet and certainly prior to smartphones right uh they're I feel like that we're probably we probably have a net negative with the kind, at least the kind of access yeah. that, we, that we have to the internet. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't mean to be too pessimistic about it. I guess I just mean that I, I think you know what you've just said is something I very much agree with. That is not an obvious and simple zero sum, you know, uh, gain. It's, it's, it's not the sort of, you know, the myth of progress that we invented this technology, like, you know, new Prometheans stealing fire from the gods. And it's, we're always getting better, but it comes at, it comes at a cost, maybe at the cost of sort of deep knowledge or deep wisdom, or maybe even to, you know, to state even less negatively than that, it comes with a challenge. It comes with this sort of like extension of our powers and access to knowledge and information. Well, it's something that I'm really optimistic about, as was Lewis, and I write about that in one of the final chapters of the book, the sort of myth and science and how these modes, theological and mythological modes, don't necessarily have to be read over against scientific modes, but it can actually experience a, har a harmonization, which is really, really exciting. As long as we are cognizant conscious and intelligent enough to to drop these kind of too simplistic evolutionary stories that you know it's always getting better no matter what we do yeah you won't have a hard time uh convincing me to have uh, skepticism about progress i've uh, right yeah. I've, I've i've been on that train for a long time right that said uh it, it is an interesting parallel uh sort of this 
I guess this sifting through and an information overload. I mean, I could see how uh, overwhelming uh, in the medieval period when all of these new texts start start coming in and from from different places. And you know, you have the you do have the challenge of sifting through what's important, what matters, and yes. and then finding a way to synthesize that in in some kind of in some kind of useful way, because we have all of these bits of information sort right. of bombarding us at all times. That's right. How, but how, how does that matter? What does it, you know, I can know a lot of encyclopedic facts, right? Uh, but you know, it, it might be great for, for watching Jeopardy in the evening or something like that, right. but, uh, but it doesn't, but, but does it help me live a better life, be a, be a better person, be a more virtuous person. And, uh, so far, uh, it seems right. to be, it seems to be indicating that it does not help with that well, at all. And I think, you know, I think if we're going to put these, you know, our culture and the medieval culture in dialogue, and if we ask the question, well, what, what could the medievals offer us in particular as a kind of guiding principle for this process of assimilation? I think what they have, which uh, they had the best, which we might uh, struggle the most with possessing, is a sense of reverence, uh, a sense of piety. You know, just think about in terms of the 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 Virgil-like Aeneas-like virtue of piety. Um, this this sense of reverence that we're going to be patient with our elders. We're going to be patient with these old books. We're going to be patient with these old texts. And we're going to read them until we at least find why they were plausible in the first place. I think that might be one of the great sort of guiding principles that the, the medievals could, could give us in our attempt to assimilate. Because I think maybe in our attempt to assimilate, you know, we, um, you know, my, the, my, my college students say, call things in the, uh, you know, songs created in the 90s and 2000s oldies or classics, right? <laughs> I think we're going to need to, ha I think, to develop a little bit uh, less of a chronological snobbery, as Lewis called it, and a more Aeneas-like sense of piety for, for these older things as we complete this assimilation. Or we might end up creating a kind of mirror of Narcissus in which we look into the mirror and see only ourselves. Well, you're certainly preaching to the choir on a on a podcast called Cultural Debris. So, <laughs> yes, uh, um, <laughs> I'm not trying to, but, <laughs> thinking, yeah. but I do I do I do appreciate that. Um, I mean, it, and and that idea tying back uh, to the book is really, really the the idea of of cosmology of of the cosmological understanding. That's right. That Lewis says that we lost from the medieval period. That's right. Um, that um, right. modernity has robbed us by, by with all of this scientific understanding that it has presented us with in the process, it has robbed us of a, a, I guess a cosmological piety. Yes. Uh, that, wow. What a beautiful that, phrase. Uh, that we would naturally develop and that, mankind naturally developed for millennia uh, un until you know guys like galileo started whacking us over the head with these telescopes and uh you know w yes we know more uh, but or, or do we right that <laughs> we we know more facts but yeah. but that has demystified reality to our detriment 
Right. Yeah. I mean, or to put it with uh, Lewis's friend Owen Barfield, um, we might know more about graphable, mappable, analyzable elements and their you know mathematical place within the great sort of geometrical grid of reality. But we've lost a, we've lost connection with inwardness. That's how Barfield put it. And I think that's I think that's how one of the the great goals that that Lewis set up for himself. Like in one way, his 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 project of preserving medieval, you know, what I call the long Middle Ages, which goes from something like Plato to Wordsworth. Um, one of you know one of his most simple goals is to try to obliterate our chronological snobbery, our type of arrogance toward the past, and just to sort of leave a, a kind of a shining light on it. So at least it's it's hard for us to dismiss it with ease. But I think he thought, and this is really exciting to me, and I, I think he's very hesitant about about saying exactly how this project could unfold. But if your if your listeners will remember book three of Abolition of Man, there are a couple of hints about what could be the next step. But I think Lewis really thought that there there much like his buddy Owen Barfield, there could be a final participation. There could be this this glorious moment. There will be this glorious moment of rapprochement between my um, my sophisticated modern science and my old, as you said, cosmological piety, or sometimes how I like to put it, my iconic sensibility toward the natural world. And that's something I think he looked forward to, but didn't feel that he himself could engage in that project, except by kind of preserving the alluring attractiveness of the old cosmological piety or the old iconicity of view of the iconicity of the world and trust that there will be a moment in which the scientist and the humanistic theologians will once again be able to re-enter into discourse and will be able to describe the world in a sort of way in which God's glory once again is manifest the natural creation. You have this quote from um, Steven Weinberg that says, the, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more, the more pointless it seems. Exactly. And I think, I think there's a lot of truth to that because, uh, you know, we, we, we have learned more and more about certain things. Because, and, 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 I, and I think that that's the important takeaway from all of this is that this knowledge that we have gained, we have gained at a, at a high cost. Yes. It's not, it's not been free that we've traded. We have traded valuable things for it. Yes. And, um, and, and we've traded away ultimately kind of a, a sense of, uh, in, not in, not simply individual purpose, but uh, sort of the, the purpose of, of man as a whole uh, that we, and, and, you know, why, why do we have, you know, sort of this embrace of nihilism and why do we have, uh, right. you know, rot rising suicide rates and that's things right. like that. And, and that's, that's what we've paid to know these things. And that knowledge has served us well in some aspects, uh, but in others it's, it's taken away kind of the, the very heart of who we're supposed to be. Yeah, no, I mean, there's some, I mean, delicious paradoxes, uh, you know, emerging, aren't there? Like the, the price of always on connectedness is an incredible anxiety and loneliness, precisely in those people who are most connected. And, 
And uh, unfortunately, sociologists are going to be uh, unraveling these things. Uh, but I mean, my favorite, my favorite kind of thought experiment with my students is to say, um, what does the periodic table mean? And the best among them will say, oh, well, you know, there are 118, 119, 119, one, either 118, you're, 119. You're, you're asking the wrong guy here. I mean, I, back when I learned, I think they've, they've come up with several new elements since I since I learned the periodic table. Okay, well, everyone, so. everyone can Google and, and, and just verify which it is. But 119 elements, right? And you know, my best students can say this and they say, well, you know, and now they're organized into columns. And these various numbers represent their atomic number. That is how many protons and neutrons they have in the nucleus. And then they're further, you know, color coordinated to indicate the uh, the habitual reaction patterns of these, you know, these various elements. And I say, yeah, no, no, I, I get that. But what does it mean? I mean, why 119, 118 as opposed to 81 or 27 or 4? And they sort of look at me, you know, in a puzzled way and say, it doesn't mean anything. It just is. Science just describes things. It doesn't say why it's the case or what it means in that sense. In that sense, you know, even, you know, that kind of, that type of secularism in which our external world has been emptied out of what I like to call an upwardly lifting moral gravitational pull. Our world's been emptied out of, of, of that as well. And, and, and that is sort of even moved into religious circles with people who believe in God and want to have meaningful lives of interior depth. Um, but that's what I think, you know, Lewis was, that, I mean, I think you said it, you know, in terms of the cost of our knowledge. And that's a, I think that's a great pricey for book three of Abolition of Man. Well, I, I had chemistry so long ago, we were still trying to figure out how to turn lead into gold. So that was the, that was the primary focus. Yeah. Of well, every class. you'll be happy to know we've done that now. We're, we're moving oh, on. Okay. We can liquidate <laughs> well, gold into That's... pure plasmic energy now. Yes. Well, see, there you go. There is such a thing as progress after all. Yeah. So. Alchemy is true, um, evidently. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to back up a little bit uh, into your book and uh, you, you, you begin talking about uh, this this third Lewis, right? You know that there there are two two Lewises kind of that we know, right? But there is this third Lewis. What what is the or who is I guess I should say the third Lewis, right? This is the Lewis that all of his students would have known. This is the Lewis, you know. I'm jokingly going to call the the crank and the pedant, right? This is the Lewis who spends a massive amount of time, say, studying phonological sound change laws in in the history of English and who teaches himself languages like Occitan, right? Or medieval French or medieval medieval Italian. And also the, the pedant who in his scholarly books thinks that, look, if you can't read my quotations from Latin, Greek, uh, Occitan, Old French, and Old Italian, then it's not worth explaining it to you, right? This is this is the scholar, right? This is uh, this is this is what he does, and he's he's concerned with the level of detail, which I think would surprise a lot of Lewis's fans who love him for his imaginative fiction and love him for his apologetics, right? In some sense, you know, we the fans, I mean, and I put myself in this category. I've been reading him since I was a teenager. Love Lewis because he's he's up to date because he's considered one of the great 
apologist for Christianity in the modern world that he's, you know, he, he gives us, he gives us a picture of Christianity, which we, we feel we can bring into the public square. But at the same time, I argue in the book, one of the other reasons we, we love Lewis, we might have more difficulty putting our finger on it and articulating it is a sense of depth, a sense, a sense of ampleness and spaciousness of his imagination, a sense of magnanimity of the heart. And I argue that that is in large part because of his background in the Middle Ages. Thus, only half jokingly say, Lewis wasn't successful as a writer, a modern writer, despite his day job, but because of it. And that might come as a shock. You know, you think, I mean, I think, especially in an American culture, right? We think that that the scholar who's the crank, who's concerned with all the, these details, well, tell me how this tell me how this affects my life. But at Lewis's deep roots were in this slow, cautious, patient, hard-won, laborious study. And he wanted to translate that. He wanted to create the atmosphere of that. But what he's but what he's doing is really kind of rescuing all these texts who have such good ideas and such a sense of authenticity and sincerity in them that they shouldn't die. They should be preserved. And Lewis's, I argue, Lewis's apologetics and imaginative fiction are the way that he's able to translate or to, to borrow the term from, from Boethius to vernacularize or popularize these old ideas which are too good to die. You're right about how, how Lewis, you know, of course, here's this, you know, the the great popular theologian of the 20th century. I, I, I think that's probably fair to say. I mean, I don't, I don't know of anybody that we would look to more than Lewis. Um, but you're right about the fact that, that he found his theology in, in these past writings that he did not read or was not in any way concerned with modern theologians. And in a lot of ways was not concerned with theology per se at all, but he was uh, he was mostly learning these things, or or uh, I guess taking in these things from literary texts, what we would consider literary texts, Dante and Boethius and so forth. Yeah. Not not Aquinas, um, and um, yeah, and and straight theologians. Yeah, no, I think I mean he was concerned with mere Christianity and maybe even mere antiquity, you could say. I, I think, you know, he was he was concerned with, with the feeling of goodness. <laughs> and maybe this is his romantic Wordsworthian uh, background coming in here as well. But I think, you know, to a certain extent, I think Lewis thought that God, holiness, the spiritual world um, were, were levels of reality which our rational minds can only occasionally and only poorly approximate. Which is not to say that, you know, everything is true or there's total relativism. It just means what much as, you know, the scientists talk about models, scientific models, and that the models are both true but inadequate to describe the full reality of the picture. Because, surprise, surprise, reality is more elusive, uh, more, if I can use the term, more magical. Um, than we had previously imagined. I think analogous, I think Lewis is, is concerned with that. 
that you know the the neo ancient neoplatonist had this incredible metaphor of human existence and uh er dodd talks about the long soul and we have this long soul now some of the soul is kind of you know within our understandable and usual powers our, our rationality and our thumatic impulses you know those those movements and desires of the heart right for for justice or for love then of course you know after freud and uh, deep psychologists we all know how far down the roots of the soul go into my baser impulses and we all know how oftentimes my seeming rational story that i tell myself or others is really motivated by these kinds of darker darker concerns i mean that's that's an element i mean we might just call that um, living in a post-lapsarian condition right with a sinful impulses but the ancient Neoplatonist also believed that there were a corresponding sublimity and sort of height of the soul, that the height that the soul was in contact with what we could call God or what they would call the good or the one, in a way which the, the philosophical life was in some sense doing hard work to awaken the eye of the soul. Augustine even uses that term, the eye of the soul to see these types of spiritual realities again. But they're only perfectly imperfectly i mean they're only imperfectly caught in terms of in terms of rational doctrines and terms of rational arguments their rational arguments are true and useful but the reality is 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 hotter and holier and sharper and more piercing than than we can explain to ourselves and so in some sense the christian life especially i think for our our pre-modern ancestors who are, you know, we were talking about inwardness at the beginning of the show, who are more in tune with these types of realities. They can sort of feel the weightiness of holiness in a way that it's hard for a modern who thinks in terms of data patterns, right? Who thinks in terms of uh, quantifiable realities, all within that rationalizing intellect. Remember Lewis's image of the, of the atrophied chest and the enormous head? Right? We don't mm-hmm. believe in yes. a chest, let alone those sort of realities above the head of this, you know, what I'm talking about, the long soul. So I think you're right when we say, well, what type of theologian is Lewis? He's very literary in his theology. I think, yes, that's right. He believes in the poetic power of the symbolic to try to express the weightiness of a reality which is above a mere human intellect. And he argues that that was more of a common experience for our pre-modern ancestors, sort of more in tune with these aspects of, of inwardness and reality, that they were more in tune with the moral uplifting gravity of the world. And to some extent, this is even associated with the very idea of holiness. So I think if you if you're if your listeners want to go back and read some some sections about this, just go back to Surprised by Joy, right? And look at what he says about both George MacDonald and G.K. Chesterton that he was surprised by this kind of strange, he uses the term holiness for, for both of it. But this kind of level of density or, uh, or of super reality, that God's glory and God's being, God's love, exceed our ordinary, rational, naturalistic, reductivist categories. And that thus, in some sense, literature, and in particularly the recovery of pre-modern literature, is a safe space for recovering these these ancient experiences of of desire and beauty, which are not merely emotive or emotional, but have this incredible spiritual value. 
that's what Lewis wanted to protect. You know, I mean, it's interesting uh, bringing that up because we we have, um, you know, in our popular media, um, novels, cinema, whatever it is, so much of it is dominated by what you were talking about, sort of our baser impulses. So much of it is what we would say is dark, right? Right. That that uh, that That's we right. understand. Um, we understand ourselves, uh, mankind, in this sort of base animalistic way. Right. And that that's really the only way that that's that that's the real understanding of man. Right. That this is yes. that this is we're, we're getting we're getting past all of this fluff to the to reality. That's right. But that but that's a that's a a cosmological embrace but and so when we look back and i think that this is this is one of the things this is where we struggle to understand antiquity uh and and, and the way and and going back and antiquity i don't even mean going back to the medieval period i mean the 19th century yes um, it's very illusion that, of you yes <laughs> that we you know, when we when you read the letters of soldiers writing from, you know, during Civil War or, um, you know, th they speak in a way that seems, you know, fantastic to us, that these people can't be real. Right. Right. Um, but it's because they were their understanding of reality was different. They saw of they saw a different vision and we look at that and we think that that's them being fake i guess yeah. that we have this uh that well it really wasn't like that that these people really were these sort of all right. the same awful people we are uh that's right our ancestors were nothing but you know um greedy People trying to control different sort of people, you know, different sort of segments of society for their own good, and I, you know, I, I think, I think that the cool thing about this, what I'm talking about, this ancient Neoplatonic model of the long soul, is that we can go ahead and just grant that that's half of the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the human heart is wounded um, in painful ways. And to ignore that is, well, I mean, ignoring a biblical view of reality, right? Isaiah talks about the human heart is so twisted who can know all of its deceit. But I think what we need to, to do to complement that, and this goes back to my earlier sort of statement about reverence and piety for our ancestors, we got to take a second thing seriously. We got to take that, you know what? Sometimes I do have noble spiritual ambitions, and sometimes I really do rise above my ordinary, pathetic little self. And sometimes I really touch shadows, faint shadows of supernatural love through courage, through beauty, through a gift of self-sacrifice, through having a heart which is animated by what Thomas Aquinas called a righteous anger, you know, a tremendous sense of justice. That happens sometimes. And just as my lower impulses are constantly trying to break into my rational intellect. So too are my higher impulses. And so our ancestors, you know, Evagrius, you know, among the desert fathers writing about this struggle, the battlefield of the soul between demons and angels. Well, I mean, I think we have neat contemporary models to, to, take, a, to take those types of things very seriously. 
um, that my the in some sense my goal is to be is to decrease the influence of those of those lower powers of the low parts of the soul and use my rational intellect and the generous movements of my soul to respond ever more to these these higher rea- realities these realities that Lewis describes in his sermon my favorite sermon I think well right up there with the weight of glory transposition as these types of realities which are trying to higher a higher level language trying to translate itself into a lower level language. And in this case, the higher level language would be God and sort of divine reality. And the lower level language would be our natural, temporal, spatial reality in which we think and move. But there are always hints and gestures and, uh, and glances caught askance, what Lewis calls joy, uh, saturated moments, saturated phenomena, as the French theologian Jean-Luc Marion calls them which are sort of gesturing at these higher realities. And our ancestors had the great grace of being able to take them very seriously and plan their methodical, rational lives around explicating and digging into those things and making them more of a permanent state of my soul soul, rather than these sort of passing, glancing, askance realities. Yeah, we, we come at everything from a sense of cynicism, of irony, um, yes. modern man has a very difficult time being earnest. Earnestness is ridiculed. Yes. And, uh, the family guy, the Simpsons. Yeah. That's, that, that's gotten to our, the marrow of our being. <laughs> right. But, but the, um, you know, the, the individual of the past, uh, you know, we can see certain things with our telescopes, and we've got the new uh, what's the new web? Yeah, the web up there. Yeah. That's and it's it's pretty. You know, some pretty cool stuff. I, I like to look at faraway galaxies as much as the next guy. <laughs> um, but by in seeing that cosmology and touching back on what we talked about earlier, um, we're we're blinded by uh, to things that our that our ancestors saw very clearly, and uh, and. And in seeing those things, ordered their lives around those things and ordered them very differently than we do. And and I and I think we just have a hard time getting what they were doing and how they were thinking. And as a result, we stereotype that simply as as ignorance and uh, and sort of this a. They, they had a primitive understanding when in reality, Lewis would say, no, they had a, they had a much more advanced and sophisticated understanding. And yes, yes. At least with respect to, uh, again, what we've called inwardness. And, right. and I think, again, I think for Lewis, I think the nice thing is that Lewis is not a reactionary conservative, is he? He's not saying, hey, because they knew things that we don't know, we need to be like them. And so I think he he doesn't want to cast out modernity. He doesn't want to cast out science. He doesn't want to cast out um, maybe another sort of gift of the modern world, our sense of subjectivity, our sense of identity. I don't think he wants to throw all, any of those things out, but he doesn't want to preserve those old ways to ask if we can have a, a marriage of them after the great divorce, right? Between the sort of interiority and objectivity and, and if... We could be part of uh, a part of a generation which which does something really extraordinary, wins just fame in the in human history by kind of you know bringing these these two aspects together. But we're so divisive, 
as you know, you, human beings that it's it's hard for us. <laughs> T.S. Eliot says human beings are not very good at bearing reality. We like simplistic yeah. stories. We like formulas. <laughs> we like easy commands, preferably from bureaucratic states that tell us exactly how to act and win uh, as a culture. And so I think I think the sort of these kind of like higher, more difficult, complicated. Uh, I'll use a musical term, polyphonic, or kind of fugal, fugal, complicated exercises in which I have to keep multiple melodic lines together. Those are that's hard for us, but I think that's the sort of vision that Lewis has for us. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. One of the things that you mentioned, speaking of talking about modernity, that Lewis did not like about modernity, you talk about how Lewis hated cars. Yes. And uh, I felt really justified know, I, in discovering that. Yes. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. Of course, I, I worked some years ago for Russell Kirk, who also hated cars and did not drive. He would he rode in them. And in fact, I was sometimes called upon to chauffeur him around, <laughs> but he did not drive them and, and of course called them somewhat famously mechanical Jacobins. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, it seems to be a similar attitude that Lewis had. And, and it's interesting though, um, because I think you're seeing now something that I don't remember experiencing in years past. And that is a, a growing anti-car movement uh, among urbanists and and so forth, um, who who are starting to see the negatives uh, right. of them that that we've kind of been blind to, and that people like Lewis and Kirk saw all along. Yes, well, I I don't I don't want to get too you know digressive here, but I think I think if you look at there are certain types of businesses which can only flourish when they exist in pedestrian zones like used bookstores. I mean, used bookstores just don't exist. Which is my favorite kind of business. Yeah, mine too. <laughs> you know, sidewalk cafes, used bookstores, uh, you know, um, I don't know, sometimes men's tailors, right? Uh, all these kind of cool, cool little shops that flourish in a place like, say, Oxford, right? Um, you have to have foot traffic for whatever reason to support these types of businesses, right? And I think also in a, in a, in a foot-driven neighborhood in a in a pedestrian community i know people have a different sense of time and they in 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 those types of situations very often your mere commercial exchange your mere exchange of of money is elevated to something bordering on a friendship or you know a, at least a, an acquaintanceship and thus you kind of it's a, i don't know it's kind of a sacrament of business you know you're you're elevating the the caloric need for survival of the animal of the physical animal to sort of levels in which they're beginning to be penetrated by value and friendship and gratitude and humor and to a certain extent to a certain extent right um sharing of of communion right well i mean if you like happened in in my neighborhood in south bend if you merely for reasons of efficiency completely redevelop a traditional neighborhood and insert clover leaves like was done in the 50s and 60s and these big massive four or five lane highways now you have people you know blitzing through your neighborhood not just at 65 which is the posted speed limit but more like 80 all of a sudden the only point of this neighborhood is to get through it and i think that's what lewis felt to a certain extent right the speed of modernity while producing the goods of efficiency and productivity also makes it feel that that 
the goal of our daily existence is to get through it and to get to the end. I don't linger in my neighborhood anymore, but I'm irritated when I have to spend more time in it because of traffic than than I previously did. And I think it, I think that's Lewis's kind of ingenious insight is that it changes our sense of time and it changes our sense of space. And along with it, it also changes our sense of relationships, but even how I think about my day. And so I live more and more of my day, you know, trying to amplify it in terms of time and race through it in order to achieve these external quantifiable goods. Then I, then I do sort of dwelling in the joyful presence of what I actually have now. And that's a sort of fascinating instance. This has become very interesting to me in which I have, tell me if this makes sense, psychologically internalized the mechanistic paradigm what was previously a methodology for scientific investigation in the age of Galileo's and Descartes and Boyle's has now become so obvious that it has moved outside and in so that now I analyze the success and value of my life with all these sort of uh, quantifiable sets of data, what Deborah Lupton calls the datification of the self. I think Lewis, yeah. even in that funny little comment about cars, I think Lewis was putting his finger on something it would take psychologists and sociologists another five decades to begin to come up with terms for. Yeah, we see all of this emphasis on, uh, you know, efficiency, but, uh, you know, calendar structures and uh, making sure that you are making the most of your time and how can I squeeze this in there and right. uh, whatever it is you're doing, are you, you know, are you quadrupling the um, the effectiveness of this across three different areas and so forth? And that's that's not a way that um, that men of old would have thought. Um, right. And and we think that if we're not doing that, that we are you know quote unquote falling behind. Right. It sort of gets that that speed idea. Yes. I'm I'm falling behind. Yes. I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm not able to keep up. And we see that as as ultimately kind of a moral failing, right? That it becomes that that becomes its own its own standard of morality that are you able to keep up right. with modernity? And if you're not able to keep up and, you know, you talk about how Lewis uh, was dismissive of, of getting the daily paper and trying <laughs> yes. to keep up with, you know, who's divorced to in Hollywood right, yeah. and so forth. Um Th- those are irrelevant things, right? Um, right. Th- those are irrelevant things to my life. They have no impact on my life. But yet, um, you know, we have to we have to keep up. And you know, Twitter is a perfect example of that. Something that right. something that can become a popular meme with you know within twenty four to forty eight hours can become old hat, and you've got to move on. And you know, people have altered the meme four different ways at this point, and you've you know, you're expected to kind of get all of them. And, uh, and if you don't, or you know, you're gone for a week or something, heaven, heaven for Finn, but yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you don't know what's going on all of a sudden you've not kept up. And yes. so there uh, we, we have, we've created these, the, right. the, I guess the superstructure to force ourselves to do that you know it's not only you know we that we step into these uh hyper hyper fast timelines yeah, that's right. and we've got to keep up with with what's going on right right and i, th- I think if you say you know maybe we can imagine a, a devil's advocate listening to this show and saying okay sure 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 i get it right 
I turn off my phone for an hour. And when I turn it back on, I think, okay, what's going on in the world? I feel that I've somehow got out of the flow of time, out of the current, and I need to get, get back up. All right, so let's imagine this is a hypothetical devil's advocate and says, okay, I get it. I agree. Sociologically, that's what it feels like. Who cares? You know, times change, technologies change. What's the big deal? And I think, um, you know, one of the, you know, one of the things in the, in the book is, well, it matters because think of screw tape letters. Because if I get kind of habitually addicted to living my life on the periphery of my being, right? When I'm thinking about productivity and, and what I'm going to be doing in uh, five to 10 minutes and how I can maximize my time, I begin to lose access to those more fugitive spiritual realities, those kinds of uh, levels of the soul, which are deeper to the core. Not just, in other words, I guess I do become bad at praying <laughs> because as soon as I just sit down and actually try to pray, uh, my mind wanders back to the hyperproductive periphery of my being. But I also become, I become a, a worse friend. I become less capable of enjoying what Lewis borrowed from the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, the, um, his wonderful phrase, the I-you or the I-thou, the I-you relationship, in which beyond mere communication, like swapping kilobytes of my personal preferences or personal background, I can commune with a person and have touch, you know, touch a soul in a qualitatively different type of way. Um, that's, I think, the sort of danger of what I called earlier the cycle psychologization of the mechanistic paradigm. Right when that world of molecules and atoms colliding in speed and undergoing force and acceleration in the sort of classic Newtonian paradigm becomes moved to how I govern the own. Uh, impulses of my soul, then we begin to lose access to qualitative types of relationship, these IU relationships, prayer, repentance, or just standing, uh, as Lewis puts it, and at the end of Till We Have Vases, standing naked, spiritually naked in the living presence of God and letting myself be seen by Him. Those types of things unfold in different I don't know, within different frameworks of how time works. Yeah, I, th I think I think that modernity has um, has undermined a I guess a, a deep appreciation of time, and that you know, going back to your idea of um, well, I guess Lewis's idea of of the chronological snobbery that we have. Uh, I mean, that for, for us, that's not simply, you know, I'm looking back on people in the 19th century in a dismissive way, but we look back on people, you know, last May in a dismissive way, you know, because <laughs> they were really retrograde the, back then. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, you look at political positions and how yes. quickly uh, people, uh, you know, Positions say on the left, and not not seeking to devolve into a political discussion, but 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 looking at at positions that people perhaps on the left might have taken. Oh, I don't know. We'll pick out a random year, two thousand eight, say, and that um, within a few years, that these people who were kind of considered sort of pioneers on the left, that 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 their that their statements would be considered, you know, quite 
uh, passe and yes, and in fact might back get, might yeah. get yeah might get you canceled today if you were right. if you were to express them and right and and yet at the same time right. with that comes this this harsh moral dismissiveness and so that, I think that's one of the reasons we've we've created. Uh, this chronological snobbery that that serves as a barrier um, for us to access the thoughts and the the atmosphere of past times because modernity has has uh, sort of put in our brains that they that this uh, that these ideas are inherently unvirtuous. Um, and, and I can't even listen to them without sort of moral judging rather than letting them inform me. Yes. Um, I am, I'm incapable of simply entering into their world Yes. I have to judge their world as falling short of my own, uh, instead of, instead of recognizing that in fact, my little slice of time is the chronological anomaly, not the thousands of years that preceded it. I love that. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think I think this is the one of the great dangers of trending culture. That is, I mean, I think if you go to your hipster coffee shop, right, and see what posters are up right now, as opposed to what were up six months ago or a year before that, right? Um, I, I don't even want to say that these are negative, you know, I, let's just assume for the sake of argument that these are all good causes that needed to be promoted to one extent or another. Right. But, you know, in 2019, it was the, the sort of, you know, the moral position of the year was concerned with hashtag me too. Right. And then it was kind of um, COVID related virtues. Right. As well as sort of concerns over uh, racial divisiveness. Right. Now we've been sort of led on to become aware of uh, gun gun violence or and or Ukraine. Ukraine's is almost kind of passe, but did we? Yeah, Ukraine Ukraine's pretty pretty much reserved for the spring. I think now that we're in the summer. <laughs> I mean, but did we? I, I guess it's you know sort of post concerns about Roe right now. That's the the big push. But do we really knock out? Um, just assuming that we had a, as grave a problem as our. Um, our pundits told us we did. Did we really knock out all the sort of concerns about hashtag me too in a single year? I mean, I think, you know, even, I mean, all advocates of this would say, no, you know, this takes a long time. And I think this is, this is the wisdom of our ancestors is that holding the correct opinion in your brain, which has been sort of battered into it is not the same thing as possessing morality, right? It's not the same thing of being good when you have that invisible ring of guy Jesus Plato talks about it. And that's what our, I think our ancestors knew, that sort of meditative, slow, studious reality in which I have to come to the point, Dante is awesome about this in Purgatorio, in which my heart warms at the thought of the good and my stomach churns with a sense of mild sense of sickness at the thought of evil. That's a hard thing to achieve. And that requires really bringing all the powers of my humanity into harmony through a process of what they would call education, which is not just merely, as, as we've said, downloading kilobytes, but is this literary, this aesthetic, as well as philosophical, as well as sort of you know scientific enterprise. 
Uh, I, but I think that's, that's something that our ancestors were really keen on is how do you actually internalize goodness as opposed to externally thrusting on people for short seasons? Well, one of the, one of the issues I think that plays into that, um, the sort of changing mindset and this, and this, um, this allows me to bring in my fellow Kentuckian Wendell Berry yes. in the conversation because you quote him. I do. Uh, from his, uh, his excellent uh, essay on standing by words. Yes. Um, and, and you talk about how, how Lewis kind of prefigures some of the things he talks about, but that, that we, we see the disintegration of community and we see the disintegration of persons, which we all recognize. And of course the disintegration of community is, is a key element of, of Barry's writing. Right. But he says, ultimately we see the disintegration of words. Yes. And I, I don't know of a more timely topic than that, because we see new definitions um, for words all the time. Yes. And that if you held on to yesterday's definition you know, it's it's literal violence. But, um, yes. you know, for example, I, I it, just as, as a I'll, I'll throw one out that's perhaps not as um, polarizing as some others might be. But I, w- I saw uh, a recent discussion in the past day or two about how uh, now that we may be having two consecutive uh, quarters of, of negative growth, um, that they're redefining the word recession right so so recession is being redefined because because we don't want to be in one of those and so we'll redefine what it is to be in one right um, so um but but that you know that of course that we we all the time throw around orwell with these things and yes. or, and that's that's an appropriate thing to throw around but uh but words matter lewis saw that very clearly barry sees that very clearly uh elliot you know, wrote about purifying the dialect of the tribe. Right, which you got from it, uh, Dante. Yeah, so you that that we that we we have to be very precise about our language, and um, then tying that into what you're writing about with sort of breathing the Narnian air, right? Yes, that these, that, that when. When people are in Narnia, their what their language becomes different. It becomes more elevated. Yes, it does. Um, and we again going back to these my hypothetical nineteenth century letters of soldiers on the battlefield, yes. riding home or whatever. They use this very elevated language, right? And these these are not necessarily highly educated men, although some of them were. Um, but they spoke differently they did and the way they spoke even though to us it sounds very florid it's very precise they they knew what they wanted to say and they expressed very complex thoughts in ways that we would struggle to do they did so very naturally um but in but a lot of times in writings that we struggle to fully even comprehend, right? Yes, it's true. Uh, our own ability, modern man's ability to even understand his own language, I think has been generally degraded. I think that's safe to say uh, on all levels. Yes. Well, I mean, I mean, some of the statistics I've come across recently are that the average teenager in the 1950s, and 
you know, you're even talking 19th century, but even more recently than that, the average teenager in the 1950s had a vocabulary of 25,000 words. Whereas in 2010, it, that was down to 12,000 words. But more up to date than that, in 2020, supposedly the average teenager is using actively 800 words a day. Hmm. That, um, that in some sense, our technological devices are so ready to hand so eager to suggest what we might wish to write in the next line of the email or text or mm-hmm. replacing replacing the difficult enterprise of describing my subjective and fugitive emotions with language sufficiently sharp and precise to evoke it, that um, we feel the need of fewer and fewer words. So yeah, Orwellian, double plus plus good. Um, I think, yeah, I think if you, <laughs> you look how we're tempted to write in our, in our text, right. Uh, substitute emojis for double, double plus plus good. Right. And, uh, <laughs> you've got something which is, uh, as I, as I like to say, we're beginning to substitute a quantification, even in our language, as opposed to the search for, uh, for quality. And I think, yeah, that that does go back to one of the ideas I tried to develop in Lewis, this idea of creating an atmosphere, that Lewis has got these great thoughts, which, again, I think he he, he develops kind of quickly, en passant. He, I, I wish that, uh, I wish that he, he could spend more time with it, um, but I guess that if he did, then I wouldn't have anything to write about. So. <laughs> but, I mean, he has these wonderful metaphors of, of atmosphere. That the, the beauty of, of literature, he says, is that it helps us feel and see something as if from within. Not sort of the anthropologist, you know, describing the dance, but the sort of forget self-forgetful joy of participating in the dance from within. That's what literature does. And that's in some sense why um, these cool old medieval ideas, which didn't deserve to die, needed literature, but they needed a literature which could still speak to us. And so Lewis takes some of these ideas like, I don't know, like gardens and Romain de la Rose, which is very formal and kind of strange to us, takes a similar idea and sets it on space, um, you know, in Paralandra, and had thus sort of rescued this type of spiritual experience from within, and, and thus Lewis's own um own imaginative writing becomes this atmosphere-creating vehicle for resuscitating these ideas. Yeah, I mean, you take somebody like Lewis, who's writing, who's writing a space trilogy, right? And so you're thinking, we, we've all read science fiction, or certainly watched a lot of movies about science fiction, right. but his, his space trilogy isn't like Star Wars, right? It's not like Star Trek. Right. It's it's a very different. Yeah cosmological understanding of what a of what being in space is you're going to a different world in in a very fundamental way um than uh than you do in in these other you know sort of our more modern conceptions of science fiction that's right yeah yeah in some sense for lewis the very opportunity to leave behind this planet was the opportunity to discover the wisdom of our ancestors. And thus, you know, he has these extensive passages, you know, sort of, you remember Ransom basking in the the glorious emerald light of the stars, thinking to himself, huh, you know what, Milton and Spencer weren't that far off. (laughs) They actually knew what they were talking about. 
Well, in getting to that idea of atmosphere, um, you know, you uh, you you talk about um, Lewis talking discussing atmosphere or landscape. Uh, he's dismissive of. Uh, you mentioned he's dismissive of something like the the Three Musketeers because it's simply adventure mm. stories sort of strung together that you're not you're not really entering into a world in the same way right you're not i guess you're not breathing narnian air right um you you enter narnia and you you're entering a different world you become you become different by being there yes. and the reader becomes different by being there right. too and that's what he's seeking uh, and that's what he's trying. That's what he's trying to, I guess, popularize and and you're arguing draw us into the past of other writers as well. That I guess the writers that he himself mined to bring us the the gold that he's uh, that he has in his hands. Yes, yeah, I I think there are two great thoughts buried in that remark, and the first is that. Why does Lewis believe so strongly in being a medieval scholar, sort of trying to bring these things back to the world? I think, well, one is just that if the world is always getting better and always getting worse, then we really can have prophets in every generation saying the world is crumbling, but sort of observing a sort of particular cultural domain, which is really is crumbling, even while we're actually building some successful enterprises on, you know, on, on other ways, in other places. Well, what that means is over the course of time, much like sort of geology, right? Rivers erode banks and even mountains are sort of chiseled away by uh, sand blown and, and wind. Um, a sort of moral landscapes change as well. And so that over the course of time, we develop these moral blind spots, Lewis says, and um, um, in some of his, his writings, like learning in wartime. And thus, th reading the past with reverence allows us to make sure that we haven't had some of these these virtues completely drop off our radar. Or maybe they have, and we can restore them um, and come to admire them as well. Thus sort of completing the complicated, fugal moral picture of what it means to be a good human being. But in the meantime, so if that's sort of task one in preserving the medieval, task two is kind of more meta. That is, in an age before scientific inquiry was the dominant paradigm of how all learning should proceed, there was a different, qualitatively different way of learning in the medieval ancestors, of our medieval ancestors. And that's what you're describing, this atmosphere creating um, trust in the imaginative creation of worlds that by doing this, I could sort of slowly conform myself to it, right? It's like, it's like being around a great person. You, it's not so much what the great person says to you in terms of factoids, but it's just the whole sort of being. And you find yourself wanting to be around the great person. I suppose you, you know this well, don't you, Alan? Being around Russell Kirk. You just in invent excuses to be around the great person so that maybe by osmosis, maybe by communion, maybe by love, some kind of mysterious process, you will sort of draw into you some of that greatness which you perceive. Well, what if we could do that with text as well? What if we could do that with literature? What if by sort of spending time and, you know, you are what you love, you become what you love and sort of working through these ideas. 
I think that's a very medieval idea of what we even mean by learning and what the very purpose of writing is. Does that make sense? If in our data-driven age, what we mainly do is communicate factoids, information, opinions, and arguments, right? I think this kind of neat meta aspect of the Middle Ages saw that there was a purpose of writing and communication, which was more like communion, which was more like creating, as, we, as we've said, this breathable atmosphere, which when the children go back to Narnia and they breathe in Narnian air, they begin to remember their old skills and their own royalty down into their, their nerves and veins and pulse, right? I think Lewis, so in addition to wanting to actually protect certain ideas, certain opinions, which run the risk of forgetfulness as our kind of moral landscapes change through the course of time, and just I think a natural process of being, of being human beings, one of the things he also wanted to do was preserve a mode of approaching truths, not just opinions and true statements, but very ways of interacting with them. This imaginative atmosphere, literary, um, as he puts it in Abolition of Man, creating, uh, creating just sentiments in ourselves and in our students. And so I think those are at least two profound reasons why Lewis felt we needed the Middle Ages so badly. You have a quote, um, page 47 of the book, but you're right that medieval authors wrote in the same way they built, studying their own uh, works with remains from the past, literary borrowings and analogous to the ancient columns woven into the architectural fabric of Christian basilicas. I, I feel like that, you know, that, that we see that certainly in the Narnia stories, and that's the kind of thing, in fact, that uh, I have read that you know, that Tolkien was kind of critical of why Santa Claus and Narnia sort of thing. Um, but he was really doing, Lewis was really doing a very medieval kind of thing, right? He was, he was borrowing from these different places and synthesizing them into a whole that was, uh, yes, anachronistic from, from a literal standpoint, but it, but it fit in a seamless way nonetheless, right? Yes. So what, so what we are trying to do, our goal, not cast aside modernity because there's only so much of it we can cast aside, right? Right. But we can yes, we can rob from the past yes, uh, and and in and build that into our own lives and being and understandings of the world. I love that. Yeah, I love that. Um, I mean, the scholars called it spolia. Um, and it was really common, say, like uh, in the age of, of Charlemagne or sort of Justinian, these kind of classic ages of both Charlemagne and Justinian, fancying that they're the successors to the Roman empires. Uh, go to Rome or the antiquity, these sites, sites of antiquity, and literally have removed these wonderful marble columns and then rebuilt, say, in, you know, in Aachen for the palace chapel or in Justinian's uh, Ravenna. And they had these things sort of recycled and sort of built back in. Uh, so new monuments, new structures, new buildings, but studded out with these spolia of the past. Um, I had never quite thought of it that way, Alan, but I think that's great. And actually, it's kind of, it's kind of liberating in a way, too. Uh, I don't have to you know, you know, hit delete on my life and start over entirely. I just have to sort of incorporate some of these spolia, right? Um, I can continue to lead 
my life as a father and a family man with kids who has to drive a car and <laughs> lives in a, a car-driven society and so forth. But if I could begin to reincorporate some of these old practices, some of these things that Lewis loved himself into my life, I could, yeah, begin to kind of rebuild build the sort of uh, the cathedral of my of my moral life with these allusions to the past. I love that. Well, I want to end on this because you you talk about um, Tolkien and Lewis had this this longing and this nostalgia for the past, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of us probably, at least speaking for myself, but I suspect a lot of cultural debris listeners can understand that that it, but it wasn't just a past that that we know was, but it was but it was a longing that that sought to go beyond that, that that's the kind of thing, in fact, that we see Tolkien writing about, you know, in his world building, going back to myth and fairy, that 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 we have a fundamental longing um, that that modernity can't speak to. Modernity's incapable of speaking to that. Yes. And that we, but, but we have this kind of, both, I guess if we can see, see past modernity or, or start to understand that modernity isn't all there is, that we have this kind of visceral longing for something else. Right. And it's, but it's not necessarily a concrete, you know, event we can point to. Yes. But it's a different way of being. Right. Um, and, and and I feel like Tolkien especially, but but Lewis too is is capturing that in Narnia. Tolkien is certainly capturing that um, in uh, in Middle Earth. Right. Uh, yes. That they're they're trying to draw us into something else. And I think that's one of those things to me, you know, there are people who just are turned off by Lewis and Tolkien. They just don't they don't get it. And I feel like it's be- it's because modernity has a hold of them too much <laughs> that they that they're not able they're yeah. not able to see past it. Yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you 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 ended on this just because I think this is uh, um, this is my attempt, the final chapter of the book, to try to shake off what I jokingly call a grumpy conservatism, a grumpy <laughs> uh, elbow patch jacket wearing conservative, um, which. Uh, yeah, which <laughs> I, I feel attacked. Go ahead. <laughs> I do too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think the the beautiful thing, and this actually might be where Lewis is more theological than his buddy Owen Barfield. Um, that you know, Owen Barfield is hoping for this time within historical time, the future, in which the you know uh, human race will once again redevelop that sense of inwardness as well as not without losing its its ability of sort of keenness toward the external realities. But that's going to happen, you know, next century, right, for Owen Barfield. It's going to happen soon when we bring it about, and it's kind of exciting. But Lewis might be more theological in a way, forcing himself to practice the virtue of hope. That is, this thing that we oftentimes feel is nostalgia. Like, uh, I mean, depending on, you know, there's that funny Woody Allen movie of Midnight in Paris, right? Where, uh, it is a favorite of mine. Oh, cool! Actually. Where Woody Allen, you know, wishes that he could go back. Uh, the Woody Allen character, this screenplay writer, right, wishes that he could go back to the great age of the Lost Generation when F. Scott Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Picasso and Dolly were all hanging out in the Paris salons, and you know that's when art was really meaningful. 
But when he gets to go back there, of course, he discovers that they all wish they could be back in the age of Renoir. And when he gets transported back to the age of Renoir, he wishes that he could be back in the age of the great Italian masters, right? I think right. something like that, you know, you know, we think we might think, I don't know, for some of us, maybe the 1950s, right, where, where boys wore flat tops and played baseball. And, you know, there's enough boys to form a team. You know, they played in sandlots or or maybe for some of us even older. Right. Maybe, you know, maybe for some of us, we're tempted like, oh, 1350. Right. The age of cathedrals and 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 mystical homilies or whatever. Right. Whatever your age is, I think. You know, for Lewis and Tolkien, of course, it's like, you know, Beowulf, right? Pure Anglo-Saxon virtue. Whatever it is, I think this is where Lewis is very insightful. I think if we got back there, we'd we'd be disappointed. We'd long for an even older age. And then if we got to go back to that, we'd still be disappointed. In some sense, that fullness of time that we had been looking for keeps receding beyond these chronological boundaries. Why? Lewis's answer is because we're really nostalgic for the future. We're, we're nostalgic for this type of fullness of reality, this theological reality, which can't successfully integrate itself into any historical epic. And so we can usefully use the writings of the past to awaken what he calls in Merlin, this the eternal ache, which we then have to acknowledge to a certain extent might not really fully dwell in any historical era. And thus we're left with a sense of hope of uh, what I, you know, paradoxically call nostalgia for the future, thinking, well, the fullness is going to have to be on the other side of the veil of time. And I think if you think of it like that, it can help safeguard you, not cure, uh, but help safeguard you from this grumpy conservatism. Jason Baxter, tell us where folks can find you online if they were so inclined to do so. Yes, I have a website. JasonMBaxter.com, JasonMBaxter.com, where I have, I list my books, uh, I list some of my my talks, some of my online writings, but I also sell my own books online. Um, I don't charge any more than Amazon does, and I'm also willing to sign it uh, at no cost for my readers just to kind of create a little bit of that sense of connection. And that is something I can assure you Jeff Bezos won't do for you. He won't sign, <laughs> he won't sign the books if you get them from his website. All right. Very good. Well, you and I still have a conversation we need to have about mysticism, but we're going to have to have that for on a different day, I think. Sounds great. Uh, I appreciate you being on. And the book is The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. It is from IVP Press and is available on your website and where all fine books are sold, I assume. Yes. Thank you. And I will link your website in show notes. Folks can uh, can find you there. Cool. and. Uh, I'm sure that you will be cheering on your golden helmets this fall. Yes. And, uh, so I wish them um, some success, but not too much. <laughs> okay. And uh, <laughs> that's that's pretty good. That's a step in the right direction, man. Well, I guess I'm working on. Yeah, it. I'm working. Yeah, on you'll it. you'll uh, love our ladies' yeah. team eventually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Jason, thanks for being on, and uh, I hope we can talk again. Hey, uh, Alan, do you have sixty seconds? Sure. I just want to say that someone once asked Lou Holtz. Maybe you know this. Lou, you don't really think that God cares about the outcomes of football games, do you? To which Lou Holtz replied, no, no, he he doesn't. But his mother does. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Uh, We we, we will end on that for sure. Good. What a pleasure. What a pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for your generosity, and I hope we'll meet in the flesh this side of Lethe. 